that we'd be attentive, but also that it would bear fruit in our lives. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. You will turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 6. I'm going to read the whole chapter together this morning. Pick up in the same spot where we left off last time. Hear the word of the Lord. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sit at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Let's pray together. Father, your your word is wonderful. It's good. It's life-giving, encouraging in the midst of some of our greatest doubts and troubles and our trials. Lord, we pray that even as we read your word afresh again this morning, Lord, that you would give us that wisdom from above that you would give us the mind of Christ, that you would fill us with your Spirit, that you would uh, renew us in the inner man to believe your Word, to repent of our sins, and to look by faith 
to the hand of God once again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever read uh, the book To Kill a Mockingbird, perhaps you remember the mysterious and very misunderstood character Boo Radley. I know it's been a while for a number of you. It's probably been years since you've read that book, but in that particular novel, uh, this character, Boo Radley, remains invisible throughout much of the narrative, and the kids start treating him as if he's a ghost because no one ever sees him. He's always inside his house, hiding, if you will. Nevertheless, from time to time, we do see evidence of his reality and of his goodness and his grace. He's constantly leaving little gifts for the kids. Even though they don't see him doing this, they suspect that it is him after all. But it's not until the end of the novel that we finally come to understand that Boo is essentially the hero of the story. Although they had no idea that he was the one working behind the scenes. He is, in the end, the one who saves the children from uncertain death. Well, in a sense, the author of the book of Esther is using the same type of literary device in our story this morning as well, helping us to see the true hero behind all of these events. Even though Esther and Mordecai are really big players in the narrative, if you will, there is a a greater hero working behind the scenes that you don't see and you don't always suspect. Sometimes we treat him as if he's a ghost, as if he doesn't exist because we've never seen him in that regard. But the author's telling the story from the perspective as if God is entirely absent from their lives, because that's often how we treat him, as if he's absent. He's not really the big player that he is. But all along in the, in the story of Esther, we see that the Lord is clearly working for the good of his people. He's leaving them gifts throughout the story. You don't see exactly what he's doing at first, but in the end, when salvation comes, it's certain that this is God's hand at work. He's revealing his works in such a powerful way you cannot mistake his identity. It has his hand, his fingerprints all over of what this wonderful work of salvation he's brought. And the most pivotal work that God performs actually is found in the very first verse of this chapter, which actually is right in the middle. It's the midpoint of the entire story of the, of the 12 chapters of Esther. We see at the very midpoint we see that from now on, everything goes in favor of Mordecai and of Esther, and everything goes against Haman. And uh, in fact, there's this sort of chiastic structure throughout the book in which we see that this one is going this way and one is going this way, and right in the middle, we see this is the, this is the pivotal moment of change. And the pivotal moment of change actually occurs in this first verse when we find that simply the king could not sleep. What causes this? This is the question we're meant to ask. Because all throughout the story, we're thinking, okay, well, we're sort of like Esther. We're sort of like Mordecai. We're the heroes of the story. But in the end, we're going to see in this chapter, neither one of these figures are that important. They play a role, very important role. But they're not the true hero of the story. God is doing all of this behind the scenes, and Mordecai and Esther have no idea what's happening. That's what you're meant to see. You're always meant to see this. In every book of the Bible, you're meant to see this, that God is the true protagonist of the story. Every step from here on out, every little detail, mysteriously yet undoubtedly, is being orchestrated by God to bring this resolution, to bring this salvation for God's people. Even though He's never mentioned, He's always behind the scenes. In between every line, 
of Scripture. You're seeing his fingerprints. He is indeed the hero of the story. You know, it's interesting. There, there are actually two men who could not sleep that night. We already read last week that uh, Haman was very disturbed about Mordecai. And now we see the king is disturbed about Mordecai for a different reason. Last week we saw no matter how much money Haman had, no matter how much power he had accumulated, no matter how many accolades he had received from the king and from the Persians within the city of Susa, he could not be happy so long as Mordecai, the Jew, is sitting at the king's gate. He could not. He could not be happy. So according to the counsel of his wife and his close friends, we ended the last chapter by seeing that he ordered his servants to build this gallows 75 feet in the air, not only to humiliate the Jew, but then to execute him as well as his most hated enemy. But while his men are hard at work, and while Haman is pacing back and forth throughout the night, just seething and yet ready to get rid of his enemy, The king is tossing and turning in bed the whole night. Cannot sleep. And out of all the forms of entertainment he could have chosen to occupy his time in the midst of his sleep, you think about it, the king has at his disposal jesters and concubines and dancers and musicians and all sorts of things. He chose to have something that's akin to what I would call our book of church order not meant to be a very fascinating, entertaining piece of literature whatsoever, yet it has a lot of facts that are you know, kind of cool if you pay attention, but he's purposely having his dullest servant read him this type of literature. Why? Because he wants to go to sleep. He's purposely not wanting to be entertained. He's not wanting to be amused. He's wanting to fall back to sleep. So he has someone read him from the Book of Memorable Deeds which is basically a compilation of all the legislation and edicts that have been passed, some battles that that have been won, and other miscellaneous ends and things of that nature that have occurred throughout the empire. But it's not all that exciting. It's a bunch of facts. It's bullet points, basically. And he's having it read to him, hoping to go back to sleep. But if you think about it, so we're not talking about a book. We're talking about a scroll, right? And so the servant has to go down into the archive room And out of the hundreds of scrolls that he could read from, he just happens to choose the one scroll that records the events from four years prior. And on that scroll, it just happens to mention the one event that Mordecai was well known for, but had also been forgotten for. For if you remember, he was the one who had discovered the plot of the assassination plot against the king. And if there's one thing that was sure to disturb the king's hope of falling back to sleep was to be reminded of the fact that someone had tried to take his life and that someone also had foiled that plot. So immediately, the king is disturbed. He's distraught. And he he, he can't remember. So what what did we do for Mordecai again? I I don't remember. What, What does it say in the records? And all of a sudden, we go from one man reading this not so exciting book, to having a number of men gather around to try to find in the rest of the record, is there something else? Is there another scroll maybe that we said we did something on his behalf, but yet they say to him, nothing has been done for Mordecai. Now, this is a huge problem. It may not be for us today, but in ancient times in the Persian Empire, especially the Persian emperors were well known for rewarding those who were loyal to the crown. 
And in fact, uh, there's another instance in which um, a man had saved the life of the brother of the king, and he was granted his own governance over an entire province within the empire, and yet nothing was done for the man who saved the king himself. Again, as I told you, uh, the, the, the lives of the emperors are precarious because they're always standing with these guys holding axes behind them ready to take out anyone who wants to kill them. But then lo and behold, one of those men ends up killing the emperor himself, maybe because he didn't reward him, as he should. So this brings even more distraught to the heart of the king. Nothing has been done for him, and that's a problem because Mordecai was forgotten. Now, if I were to take a step back from the story for just a moment and try to apply this in some way, how many times in your life have you felt like you were forgotten? How many times in your life have you felt like you got the short end of the stick, you did something that somewhat was worthy of mention, but yet you were overlooked? You ever had that happen? I remember when I was in high school, my dad, I overheard him talking to my mom, and he was really bemoaning and uh, very upset that he had been passed over for the same position ten times. And I think it was something like ten years. He had more seniority, more experience, more everything than anyone else who would apply for the job. But he was working for the state of North Carolina. And in the state of North Carolina, you don't get jobs based upon that. You get jobs based upon politics. And my dad was of the wrong side of the politics. And there was no backroom dealing that he was privy to because he was an honest man. And so he kept being forgotten, kept being overlooked again and again and again. Eventually, there would become a supervisor who saw his merit and gave him the promotion 10 years later. My question is this. Was God sovereign over that? The fact that my dad was forgotten, overlooked, was God sovereign over the fact that he got the job later on? Is God doing anything in the midst of our disappointments? Is he doing anything in the midst of our failures? Is he doing anything in the midst of those really strange events that we don't always understand? Do we know the reasons why God is doing what he's doing? Most of the time we don't. We have no idea. We don't see his hand at work. We're, we're missing it. The other day I read a story in the paper about a man who was swimming off the coast of Greece in the Aegean Sea. It was at some famous beach, I think. And all of a sudden, the, the waters just dragged him out into the middle of the ocean and far away from the coast. And after a number of hours of treading water, he, he almost sank. But then suddenly, this half-inflated children's ball floated right in front of him. And he held on to this half-inflated children's paw for 19 hours, and it saved his life. Secured, uh, the Coast Guard finally find him, miles away from shore. But the rest of the story, as it is often said, there's a woman watching TV, and she sees this news story. She immediately recognizes the ball. Eight weeks prior, her two sons went with her to the beach, were playing with that ball, and the water took it, and they lost it. Didn't give a, another thought about it. 
But that ball just happens to float for eight weeks right into the path of the man who needed it at that very moment. Coincidence? See, that's the problem. So we, we know the rest of the story, which is awesome, because you're like, okay, well, we see what's happening, right? But if you think about it, every single time in your life where you wonder, what is going on? What are you doing, God? You don't have the rest of the details. You don't know. They haven't been revealed to you. But every single moment of your life, something is going on where God has a thousand details that he's privy to that you're not. And that's the beauty of this story. It's not that this is so unique that God does these things, but that they're all being revealed to us at one time in the book of Esther. We see what he's doing behind the scenes. The the narrator's telling us all the details. Most of the time we don't have them. And we question, we wonder, we doubt, you see. The whole book is written from that perspective that they're doubting. They don't know. Does God really care? Is He really helping us? Is He really at work here? And the answer to the book of Esther is, yes, indeed, He is. He does care. He does have a plan. He knows what He's doing, even if we don't. So, I have to say, out of all those people, that, and I, I, I think I've made fun of it before, and forgive me if I make fun of your expressions, but I always hear people say, that's a God thing when it's something that they like. And what I'm telling you, it's a God thing when it's the things that you don't like. Because everything is a God thing. God is working out every detail. So is it a God thing when you don't get the promotion? Yes. Is it a God thing when you do? Yes. Is it a God thing when you live? Yes. Is it a God thing when you die? Yes. Every single detail. God is working out these things. It's not just coincidence. God is at work. The only reason we even ask the question in this regard is because we don't have all the details. Always know that. There's so many more details that we're missing that God has. And if we only knew the rest of the story, you'd be like, wow. Why was I complaining? Why was I so bitter? Why did I doubt so much? Of course, in the story of Esther, we're, we are given those details. The, the, the Lord is working out all these things in such a wonderful way. But, but we all see this after the story is over with, after all the facts have been revealed. Nevertheless, for four years, Mordecai doesn't know this, right? So keep in mind, you're Mordecai at this moment. For four years, he's forgotten. For four years, no reward, no recognition, no acknowledgement. And at the same time, for four years, his most hated enemy is elevated, praised, honored, glorified. So you can see how he's like, this is not right. God is unfair. I don't believe any of this stuff. You see? That's, that's the temptation at least. And the king is now also upset about it because he's terrified that uh, the, law of the, Merz, uh, the law of the Medes and the Persians says that he has to reward this man and he hasn't done it. So in, in one account, uh, uh, he's going to have some issues. King has to do something, but as usual, he can't do a single thing without asking someone else what he should do. Have you noticed that? The man can't make up his mind on anything. I mean, I, I, whatever it is, he has to ask. And, and whatever counsel he gets, what does he do? He takes it. Honestly, he's the biggest buffoon of a king I have ever seen. Sadly, this is not an ancient problem alone. Regardless of the political party that you like. We have so many that will take the counsel of fools. 
This is why we pray daily for our leaders in government because they are surrounded by fools. And many of them are fools themselves. So we see Mordecai's status can change in a heartbeat. The status of the Jews can change in a heartbeat solely at the whim of a king and his counselors. So it's very important that we pray accordingly in that sense. But early in the morning, probably before sunrise, Haman is rushing to the palace to be the first in line to talk with the king. Because again, keep in mind, he can't go into the king's palace without being summoned as well. So he has to stand in the outer court like anyone else and hope to be acknowledged. So if you're the first in line, more than likely you're going to be acknowledged. So he's there probably at like 5 in the morning or maybe earlier. Excited. Gallows are, are almost done. Let's get this edict passed. Little does he know, the king also wanted to talk to him about the same man. Just for a different reason. Mordecai wants to humiliate him. The king wants to exalt him. Strangely enough, uh, neither one of them used the man's name. At least not at first. In fact, it's the same way, if you remember when Haman originally had pitched the idea of executing the Jews, he never bothers to tell the king that it's the Jews he's executing. And now the king is doing the opposite. He's telling this man who he wants to honor, but he never tells you his name or what he is. And both guys don't know how to talk to each other without giving details. It's kind of strange. But instead, the king asked Haman a very interesting question. Verse 6, he says, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And in this particular case, the author doesn't tell us what Haman says immediately, but rather tells us what he thinks. Now again, this could be a literary device. The omniscient narrator is telling us all the motives and the thoughts and the fears and the hopes of each character, if you will. But keep in mind, this isn't any normal book that you're reading. It's a book that's written by whom? God, who is the omniscient narrator, he knows not only what characters do, but he knows what you and I think, he knows what you and I plot, he knows what you and I fear and hope, and all the above. And he knows the same things about all of our enemies. And so the fact that the author is telling us what Haman is thinking here when the king has no idea what he's thinking, again, is a privilege, a great privilege that we have here in this text. But again, the one thing that Haman... (laughs) is willing to overlook his revenge for five minutes is simply because now he has the thought of elevating himself even more. The idea of his own aggrandizement helps him to overcome his bitterness for just a moment, and he thinks to himself, wow, he wants to honor me even more. He wants to delight himself in my honor. Uh, And so, in fact, if you'll notice in the text as he's explaining all the things that he wants the king to do, He keeps repeating that phrase again and again, the one in whom the king delights to honor. He says it three times. After he's already said it to himself, now he says it three times to the king as if the king doesn't know what he said. And then he tells him that the great... So that even though Haman is hell-bent on annihilating Mordecai, this lowly Jew... Uh, this constant uh, lack of detail that they both have. He, now we, sight, we see that Haman is, is, is purposely trying to promote this fantasy once he knows what's going on. So um, think about it. Haman doesn't need money. He doesn't need uh, power. He doesn't need position, if you will. All that's left for him now at this point is fantasy. He wants to be king for the day. He wants to 
grasp for equality with the king, if you will. He's constantly seeking to build up his own reputation in that sense. And so, again, anytime a king would ask such a question to any of us, we were like, ah, let me think about it. He already has like seven things in mind immediately of what he wants the king to do for him, to honor him in that sense. So if you think about it, look look at the details he's talking about. Okay, I want want this man to be able to wear the king's robes, even though no one else may not know if it was his robes or wearing his, riding his horse or, you know, being surrounded by his things in that sense. At least he knows it and he is king for the day. Now, if you think about it, if, if the king were aware that Haman was seeking these things for himself. It would be treasonous. He's basically saying, I want to be king. Uh, In fact, you remember in the Old Testament when King Saul is irate with his son David because David is befriending, or excuse me, his son Jonathan because Jonathan is befriending David. Do you remember that uh, Jonathan actually takes off his royal robes? and his armor, and his belt, and his tunic, and gives it all to David. Basically, that is what Haman is asking the king to do for him, to declare him to be the king for a day. And again, how stupid is the king to agree to this? No matter who it is that's being elevated in this way, but he's, oh, sure, here's my ring, let's sign it. That's, again, just not the greatest of guys here. He has no idea what he's doing. He's not a discerning man. And yet... Haman again convinces him to do these things. And Haman is uh, so full of pride. This just appeals to him so much that this would actually occur. If you remember, the emperor had promised Esther up to half the kingdom. He was ready to declare half the kingdom for himself in an instance. If only he had been asked that same question, he would have grabbed at it instantly. But... At least for the day, he can fantasize that he is the king. Of course, the shocking part of the story that you already know is that Haman's like, okay, this is great, great. The king just said yes, great, great. Do all that, do all that, do all that. Oh, he's just, this is so awesome. Do it all for the Jew sitting at the gate. His name's Mordecai. Now, I was trying to think of it from a couple different perspectives. Uh, think of it, first of all, from Mordecai's perspective. Mordecai's sitting in mourning, still wearing sackcloth, right? All of a sudden, Haman comes up to him with this whole entourage with horses. What do you think Mordecai's thinking is going to happen? He's ready to be executed. And instead, all of a sudden, he sees Haman with this fake smile. Hey, <laughs> let me help you change your clothes, you know? Let me... And he's, you know, kneeling down, let me help you up on the horse. Here, stand on my hands, you know, whatever. And let, let's hoist you up and, and, and do what you got to do and all, all the things, you know. And then Haman is having to grit his teeth as he has to say numerous times as they circle around the city, probably a couple hours it would take to do this. He's having to say over and over and over again, this is the honor that the king delights to give to the man he, blah, 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 over and over and over again. Strange how uh, God has this divine reversal in mind. It, it just These things don't happen normally. But imagine the horror that Haman is experiencing at this point. When it's finally over, you can again see the contrast between the two figures. Immediately Mordecai gets off the horse and he goes back and sits at the gate and goes back to his work, his job. Notice he doesn't gather around all his friends. Look what happened to me. Look how awesome this is and how awesome and great I am. doesn't do that. 
He just goes back to work. He doesn't care about the accolades of pretending to be the king for the day. But Haman, on the other hand, Haman immediately goes home as quick as he can. He's mourning. He's covering his head in shame. Again, keep in mind, this is a reversal too because we see that that Mordecai and all the Jews are sitting in sackcloth and mourning and now the mourning is given to the enemies of God. Now they're mourning and they're distraught. A divine reversal for sure. This time, though, he goes back to his friends again, trying to seek some comfort, some counsel. This time they give him no comfort whatsoever. This time, finally, they have some wisdom from heaven, and they tell him it's, it's over. You can't overcome the one who is basically one of God's people. As he rises, so you too will fall. Again, strange that all of a sudden they know this, especially given the fact that Mordecai, not Mordecai, Haman had told his wife and his friends in the previous chapter that Mordecai was a Jew. But now it's like it's almost as if they didn't know that he was a Jew. And he said, well, this Jew is going to be raised up and, and you're going to be brought down. But I think it's, it's sort of similar to that uh, insight that if you remember Rahab gets when she's in the city of Jericho. And all of a sudden she gets this wisdom from above. It joins hands with the Israelites and says, I know that we're going down. I want to join with those who are being exalted. Same way you remember Balaam even. Balaam the, the prophet, the wicked prophet trying to curse God's people, but each time he's forced to bless them. Instead, he sees something that is upon them. God's favor is upon them, and as a result, he cannot curse them, but only bless them. Now, in the same way, these wise men are telling Mordecai, um, Haman, I'm going to get this right eventually, telling Haman that uh, the Amalekites, the Agagites are going down while the Israelites are going to be elevated. But we don't get to hear the rest of what they say because at this point now the, the, the story begins to speed up even more. Immediately the king's eunuchs come to the palace and whisk him away, almost as if it's against his will. But it's not because, again, keep in mind, Haman doesn't know what's going on yet. He, he still thinks that he's going to be sitting and enjoying a great dinner with the king and queen. So all's not necessarily over with just yet. He's still got some hope even though he's been humiliated. He doesn't think anything about death or anything of that yet. He just knows that this isn't good. He's hoping it'll get better. But more important than that point is this. Esther also has no idea what's going on. You think about it. Esther has no idea the gallows have been built, or if they have been built, for what reason. She has no idea what has happened in Mordecai being elevated. Again, she's sitting in the palace, but she's the last person in the world to hear any of this news because she's... In the harem, she doesn't know what's going on. Mordecai doesn't know what's going on. All of a sudden, he's being paraded through the city, but why? Why has this happened? The king has all of a sudden done this, but why Haman? He doesn't know what's going on. He still doesn't know what Haman has been doing behind the scenes. What What are we to make of all these events and all of this ignorance, if you will? Again, it goes to show us that someone else is working here. Someone else is a bigger player than even Esther and Mordecai and Haman. Someone else is causing these things to happen. Again, as the book is purposely written from the narrator's perspective, it's verse 1 of this chapter that's supposed to be the hinge upon which all of this turns. Esther doesn't keep up the king at night. Mordecai doesn't keep him up at night. Haman doesn't keep him up at night. God does. God is doing all this behind the scenes. God is the one who caused the king to overlook Mordecai for four years. 
And that might bother some of us, that God would purposely cause our humiliation. God's the one who caused this in order to bring out salvation later on. Think about how many times have you lost something? Some of you are much more prone to losing things than others. Can you think about every single time you lost something, maybe God was behind that? Maybe God was behind you finding it. Maybe God was behind you never finding it. You never know. You don't know the details. You ever thought that God is behind your insomnia? Your headaches, your sicknesses, your diseases, all those other things that make you weak and powerless for moments at a time, that God is working behind the scenes to do these for reasons that we don't always know? That God is the one that made you choose to read in one particular portion of the Bible something that just hit you like a hammer over your head. You ever had that happen? You're reading one text, and then you turn to something else, you're like, oh my, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Is God not behind that? He's working. God's the one who happens to move Haman, even this evil man, to come to the palace at exactly the right moment that the king is looking for a bad counselor, and he's there. God's purposely not allowing them to tell the details to each other so that they can't compare notes and know what's going on. And God is still working through that bad counsel to carry out his purposes. God is the one who demoted Vashti and raised up Esther. All of these things are being played over time like as if on a chessboard. And all that has to happen collectively in order for God's people to be saved. Every single one of those things all have to happen. If they don't happen, God's people aren't saved. Now you think, well, if God's doing all of this, well, we might as well just sit back and enjoy the ride. That's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that Esther and her people were all fasting and praying as well. That they're looking for God to make things like this happen. Too many coincidences in the story, timed too perfectly to not see that. It's been said that a coincidence is a miracle in which God chooses to remain anonymous. Makes sense. Nevertheless, William Temple, a pastor once said, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. Have you found that to be the case? That's not always true. Certainly coincidences happen when we don't pray as well. But have you not at least acknowledged the fact that you see the coincidences more often because you've been a part of the work that God is carrying out? We haven't got to the part in Ezekiel yet, but we're going to see it when we talk about God's sovereignty in our prayer life. God actually tells Ezekiel what he's about to do. And he wants, to tell, he wants Ezekiel to tell the Jews what he's about to do. But then he says, and I want you to pray that that'll happen. What? He tells God's people to pray for something to happen that God has already said is going to happen. Why is that? Does God need us to pray if he's going to do something? No. But he wants us to be a part of it. He wants us to enjoy it, to share in the glory, to share in the wonder of God's miracles that often we think of as coincidences. God is working these things out. And yet, if we fail to pray, that doesn't mean that God's not going to do them. What did Mordecai say to Esther? If you don't do anything, what will happen? Someone else will be raised up to do it. But what happens? You miss out on the glory. 
because you didn't obey. You didn't trust. God just raises up someone else. I mean, if you think about it, how many times have you thought to yourself, well, if I didn't say something to so-and-so, they would never be saved. It's not true. They're going to be saved. God will just raise up someone else. But you miss out on the glory. You miss out on seeing the coincidence unfold and see God's invisible hand made visible. Indeed, not only does God know and thwart the secret thoughts of the wicked, he can do immeasurably more than all we ask or think, is what Paul says. He can overcome any aspect of the trial and the, the persecution that we might face. In this story, if you think about it, it, it really is exciting to see the reversal of the conditions of what's going on in the book of Esther. But, but it, this is nothing in comparison to the New Testament when we see the gospel of Christ and how everything is reversed suddenly on the darkest night of all of history when Jesus is crucified and then buried and dead and his disciples think, that's it. It's over. They have no concept of this divine reversal that God is doing in the midst of all these things. And they, they have no concept of, of God's view of his own people in that regard. They, they, they're so blinded by their own sin. If you remember, Jesus was the one person in all the world whom the king of kings actually said, this is my son in whom I delight. The very thing that Haman is craving from someone to give him, he can't get it because he won't receive it from God because he won't repent. He won't trust in the Lord. Jesus is the one who actually earns the delight of God by his obedience, by his perfect obedience. He is well pleased with them. Nevertheless, God's own son, the one who deserves this kind of honor, the one who deserves this kind of respect and glory and honor and praise, the people despise him. They treat him like he is a criminal. Literally hanging him on a cross as a criminal would be. And if you think about it, the, 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 the way in which these events are unfolded, unlike Mordecai, who's raised up from the threat of death to be paraded throughout the city, Christ comes in parading through the city and then is put to death. It's the exact opposite. Mordecai is elevated. Christ is humiliated. And Christ is the one that the king delights in. You start to connect the dots with this. There, there really is something to this story, much bigger and greater story than even what we read in the book of Esther. Jesus, the righteous one, the one who pleases God, is condemned and declared to be guilty. And, and yet those who are sinners, who do not deserve to be elevated, praised, glorified, are. They receive God's commendation. But, but that's only the case because this isn't the end of the story. Most people in the gospel with Christ, dying on the cross, he's raised from the, the grave, and then eventually he sends up in heaven, and he's seated at the God's right hand. And that's great, and that's good, but that's not the end of the story. You have to know the end of it. And the end of the story, we see, it only comes to its full conclusion when Christ returns to this earth and claims every kingdom as his own. So that every king on earth, not just his noblemen, every king on earth bows before him and says, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King, the King of Kings. When that happens, the scripture says, even those like Haman 
will be forced to bow down and to confess the truth of his sovereignty. The rest of us, <laughs> no forcing needed whatsoever, we're excited, longing, expecting, praying for his return, that he would take over this world and finally get rid of all the fools that have been leading us all these years. For those who are delighting and longing for his return, it will be our highest joy, our greatest delight, to say, not only in heaven, but here on earth, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and honor and glory and wisdom and might and honor and blessing forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen and Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us, help us in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our doubt. Help us to know the whole story and to cling to the truth that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to cling to him tightly, not being so foolish as to believe the devil's lies, not being so foolish as to be conformed to the patterns of this world that have no idea what's going on with all these coincidences. Lord, help us to pray that we might share with you in the joy and the glory of your powerful work. Lord, help us to trust you when we don't see the details, knowing that what you do is always good and right because you are righteous, always doing the right thing 